suppose you walked into service this morning and your greeter, perhaps it was Stephen for 11 o'clock service, Joe and Frank, they said to you, why are you here? What are you doing here? We don't want you to come here. What would your response be? And then you came through and Mary and Ruthie were like, why are you guys here? What are you doing here? You're dressed like that. You're coming in here. We don't want you to be here in our church. And then I proceeded to come up here from the pulpit and I continued to verbally abuse you. And I said to you, you guys, this and that, all these different reasons why I don't want you here, but you continue to come here. Would you still come here? Would you still come to church here? You guys are like, oh, what's the right answer? What if, <laughs> what if God told you to come here, but every time you came, you were verbally assaulted and rejected? Would you still choose to come here? Because God told you to. See, Jesus, he's determined to follow God's will for his life despite rejection. And that's what we're going to focus on in this passage in Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 to 58. Title of this message is Determination Despite Rejection. Determination Despite Rejection. See, Jesus is going to come to his own countrymen, the region of Galilee, specifically Nazareth, and he's going to be rejected by his own. Let's read the story. It's a short one. And then we'll dive in uh, and unpack these verses. Matthew chapter 13, verse 53. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these teachings... That he departed from there, when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph, Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now we see the same story uh, in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 6, verse 1 to 6. And we're going to flip there a couple times because when you look at the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have some of the same stories that are on in all three gospels. And when you compare the stories, it adds more color. We get more detail so we understand what happens more in depth. So we're mainly going to be in Matthew chapter 13, verse 53 to 58. But a couple times I'm going to switch over to Mark chapter 6 because there's some specific things that Mark says that I think is really important to key in on. Okay, let's look back at verses 53 and 54. It says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. He just taught the Matthew 7 
uh, Matthew 13 parables, the seven parables that are there that we've been discussing the last few weeks. Uh, most of these parables, they connect to the end of the age. That's the church age. And we dove deep into each of those parables. There's CDs in the back if you weren't here for any of those. But Jesus, he just dove deep with the disciples and they don't really understand everything he's saying. So they come to him for understanding. And then he breaks down these parables and he explains, hey, this is what I mean by these parables, by these stories. We talked about how those who are seeking Jesus are those who are going to receive understanding because that's what Jesus shows us through these parables. So Jesus, he just got done with this in-depth study with the multitudes and then further with the disciples. And now what is he going to do next? He departs from there and he continues on teaching. See, ministry, it wasn't just an event. Jesus didn't just come in the synagogues on Sunday and teach. Ministry was a lifestyle for Jesus. He was always engaging with ministry. He just got done teaching all these parables and now he leaves not to get rest, but to continue to pour out and invest into other people. And he happens to go into a synagogue this time. Look what happens in verse 54. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? See, they recognize there's something special about Jesus. There's power behind his words, not just his words, but his works. He was doing miracles. He wasn't just preaching in power. And they see the combination of these things. And they're like, wow, man, this guy is is something else. He's something different. But after they're astonished and some um, times marveled at his words and his works, look at how they respond in the next verse. Verse 55. Is this not the carpenter's son? Immediately they're trying to discredit the power and wisdom of his words and his works. They're astonished at his works and his wisdom, the scripture says, but they reject and ridicule him because of his occupation. They say, is this not the carpenter's son? The implication there is that Jesus was a carpenter because sons often followed in their father's footsteps. If your father was a carpenter, you became a carpenter, right? If your father was a priest, you became a priest. Whatever your father did, that's what you did. Now, Jesus, he is a carpenter. We know from scripture, but they're rejecting him because of his occupation. It didn't throw Jesus off guard. He knew that when he went to Nazareth, that he would be rejected. It's throughout the scriptures and we'll talk about it later, but I want to bring you to my first point. First of three, expect rejection. Jesus expected rejection. Now, this goes a little deeper than maybe surface level reading might suggest. They say, is this not the carpenter's son? Is he not simply a carpenter? This was an insult. What they're saying is, this guy's teaching in the synagogue, but he has no formal training. This isn't a man that studies the scriptures. This is a man that works with his hands. Who is he to tell us what to do concerning the scriptures? He's a carpenter. Now, to understand culture and context, uh, a carpenter in those days, um, they didn't necessarily primarily work with wood. See, wood uh, was a very rare resource in Israel. 
So a carpenter, you look at a carpenter day and they're like, oh, they're always working with wood, they're molding, they're shaping, they're building, all these different things. But in those days, a carpenter would work with stone more than they would work with wood because there was a lot of stone. There was very little wood. Does anyone know like a stonemason or a brick mason, a construction worker, anyone? Yeah. What do those dudes usually look like? They're usually jacked, right? They got like forearms. They're always picking up heavy stuff, moving around. You know, like the paintings you see of Jesus is like little frail Jesus, like skinny, like the scrawny little. That's probably not what he looked like. He was a carpenter. He was a stonemason. He was working with stone with his hands all the time. He's the son of God. He was probably jacked. He's probably ripped for real. So Jesus, he works with stone and there's so much implication there. See, he's a builder. He's using these stones. He's chipping away. He's molding and shaping them to build these bigger things. He's molding and shaping us. He's chipping away at us. Why? Because he's preparing us. He's building us to become what God has called us to become, not just for ourselves, but for God's will in general. Peter says it like this in first Peter. He knows Jesus as the carpenter. And I love how he puts this in first Peter chapter two. If you flip with me there, First Peter chapter 2, he says, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the carpenter, the stonemason, he calls us living stones. You guys, each of us, me included, we're living stones. And Jesus, he's chipping away at us. He's molding us. He's shaping us to build this spiritual house. It's all a part of the bigger picture of the body of Christ. Yeah, he has to chip away. Yes, he has to mold. But I want to look at one other part of this text Look at verse four again, coming to him as to a living stone rejected indeed by men. See, Jesus, this is him. He was rejected indeed by men. Why? Because he's a carpenter. He wasn't the person that they thought he was going to be. This wasn't the Messiah that they expected. We get further clarity to what I'm saying here. If you look at verses six through eight, First Peter chapter two, look what he says. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also, they also were appointed. This was a prophecy that Jesus fulfills. See, he was the cornerstone that was rejected by men. He was a stumbling block and a rock of offense. Why? Because they were expecting someone to come in the occupation or position of a king. 
They weren't expecting a poor carpenter. They weren't expecting a mere man that works with their hands. They were expecting a guy like David, a mighty warrior that was going to take over Rome and free the Israelites. That's not what they got. So when they got Jesus, the poor carpenter, they're like, well, this can't be the Messiah. This isn't what we expected. So he was a rock of offense. It stumbled them. They didn't understand. Wait a minute. This I thought he was supposed to be this powerful king, but he's this lowly servant because he's, he's both. So despite the obvious power and authority of Jesus' words and works, remember they're astonished at his words and works, the people discredit him because of his occupation, because of his lack of formal training. He's not a Pharisee. He's not a Sadducee. He's not a scribe. He's a carpenter. Do you ever discredit people because of their lack of formal training? You guys could discredit me if you wanted to. You know what? I am a college dropout. I dropped out of college like four times. I don't have my bachelor's degree. I didn't go to seminary school. I didn't do any of these things that people would look at and say, oh yeah, these are the qualifications that you need to have to be a pastor or a preacher or any of these things. I'm not. But luckily, as the scriptures say, Jesus, he was a carpenter. And then we see in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, they say to him, these men are untrained and unlearned. But there's something different about them. They've been with Jesus. What are they implying there? There's power in their words. And the last time we heard someone speak with this type of power, it was Jesus. And just as we assume Jesus was unlearned and untrained, yet we couldn't help but marvel at his words. So too now, John and Peter, they carry this same power. Though they're uneducated, though they're unlearned, though they don't have the formal training, there's power, there's power in their words. First Corinthians chapter two, Paul puts it like this, a man who was formally trained, a Pharisee of Pharisees, he proclaims, but he recognizes something. It's not about the formal training. It's not about the occupation or position. It's about one thing and one thing alone. Look what he says in first Corinthians chapter two, verse four. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It's not about our occupation. It's not about our position. It's not about our intellect. It's about the demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the words that are being communicated, empowered by God, they're not just persuasive. They don't just sound good. They don't just tickle the ear, but they pierce the heart. There's power behind these words. And that's what they're recognizing with Jesus. They're astonished, astounded by the power in his words, but they still reject him. Not only because of his occupation, but also because they're stuck in their ways. If they receive his words, then that means that they're going to need to change. Their hearts described in Psalm 50. If you flip with me there, Psalm 50, verse 17. 
He says, Seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you. This is God speaking in this situation. This is God speaking in our scripture. Regardless of his occupation, even if they knew it was God himself speaking, they would still reject what he has to say. Why? Because they don't want to change. They reject the instruction from God because they're stuck in their ways. This is the heart of the people of Nazareth. They're comfortable where they're at. If they have, if they receive the words from Jesus, again, that means they're going to have to change a little bit. They're going to have to do something a little bit different with their lives. So if, even though I recognize the power and authority of his words, if I can discredit something about the, the preacher, if I can discredit something about the one that's communicating the word, then I can justify my sin and I don't have to, I don't have to change. I can just stay where I'm at. But before we judge these people of Nazareth, it's really easy to read the scriptures and be like, oh, they messed up and they messed up. I can't believe these people rejected Jesus. We do the same thing. So often God gives us instruction and we reject the instruction. Yeah, we know it's powerful. Yeah, it pierced the heart. Yeah, there's conviction and I know I'm supposed to change, but I'm going to think of any excuse I can not to change. There's something in us. There's something uh, innate in our hearts that says, no, God, I don't want to listen to you. I want to rebel against you. I want to reject your words, even though there's power in them. And you know what the Bible says about that? In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1, it says, he who hates correction is stupid. That's not my words. That's what the Bible says. But think about that. If we're so prideful that we're not teachable, Of course, if we don't receive correction, we're stupid. If we don't receive correction, then we're not going to grow and we're just going to stay the same. If we're not inviting instruction, if we're not inviting correction, if we're not humble enough to be taught, because all of us need to be taught, me included, right? There's things that I need to learn. There's things that I don't know. If I have a hard heart towards instruction or correction, then I'm not going to grow. I'm just going to stay stupid right where I'm at. But the Lord says, no, you need to receive instruction. I want you to grow and you're only going to grow if you're corrected and you receive the correction. How hard is it to receive correction? When people tell you about yourself, like, hey, man, this thing needs to change. You keep doing this thing and, you know, it needs to stop. You need to change, whether it's by a parent or a friend, somebody in the church, People correct me all the time. As soon as I get done teaching, I get corrected every day, pretty much. It happens all the time. I have a choice. I got to receive that or am I going to reject it? Am I in a position that, oh no, uh, I'm holier than thou and I'm teaching from the pulpit so I can't receive any more instruction? No, the Bible said I'd be stupid if that was my heart. But it is hard to receive instruction. It is hard to receive correction because we got pride. We got rebellion in our hearts. The Bible says, no, don't allow your heart to go become so hard that you're not teachable. Invite correction, invite instruction. But it goes both ways. It's not just receiving correction, receiving instruction. It's communicating it as well. Remember how hard it is for us to receive instruction. Remember that when you're communicating to another person in the body when they decide to reject what you have to say. 
I don't want to hear that. Maybe it's speaking to a child, but maybe it is speaking to a brother or sister in the congregation. And you're like, I'm trying to tell you these things because the route that you're going, there's going to be serious repercussions and consequences. And I don't want you to face the consequences of your sin. I want you to change in the way you're going. Like, I'm just crying out because I love you and you're speaking truth and love. And that brother or that sister is like, I don't care. I don't want to hear it. We can expect that. They rejected Jesus' words even though he was speaking out for their own best interest. That's what he's doing. He's telling these people, if you don't turn from your ways, you're going to rot in hell. You're going to burn in hell. No, I don't want that to happen. Do you listen to what I have to say? But regardless, they still rejected him. If they rejected Jesus, they're certainly going to reject us. And Jesus warns us of this time and time again. One time was in uh, Matthew chapter 10, a couple pages over. He says it like this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. Remember, he sent the 12 disciples out to preach the gospel. And he says, this is what's going to happen. This is your reward for preaching the gospel. One of them. And you will be hated by all for my namesake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. He says, you're going to be hated. You go out to speak truth and love to people. Most people that you speak truth to, or at least many of them, are going to hate you. They're going to despise you. They're going to reject you because they rejected Jesus. And this was really a big portion and a big part of his ministry. John talks about it in John chapter 1. If you flip there real quick, if you don't get there in time, I'll just read it. Time's up. John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. So he came to his own, meaning those that he created, but specifically we see in this passage, he came to his own. He came to his own countrymen. He came to his friends. He came to his family and they all rejected him. Remember in John chapter 7, we talked about this weeks ago, even his brothers didn't believe in him. His brothers didn't believe in him. His family members rejected him. His friends rejected him. The people that he grew up with rejected him. Now, in a Christian culture in the United States, that's basically what we are, we don't see this as being as prevalent in our lives as opposed to a different culture or um, maybe a more uh, a Muslim culture or a culture that's, uh, that Islam is more prevalent. We don't see the rejection as much. But I want you to try to think about this. Like, Think about if all of your family members rejected you when you accepted Jesus Christ. Some of you, maybe that happened. There's a guy, his name's Nabil Karishi. He's an author and an apologist. Um, anyone know Ravi Zacharias? Okay, you'll know Ravi. Nabil works for Ravi. Okay, Nabil, extremely intelligent, um, great author. He grew up Muslim um, in the United States. And he's so smart. He actually, yeah, like I said, he went to school to be a doctor. He's ridiculously intelligent, kind of like, like, like Ravi is. And he was kind of one of those Muslims that he'd have these conversations with Christians and make them feel really dumb for what they believe. He'd say, what about this? What about this? Why does Jesus say the Father's greater than me? How is he God if the Father's greater than him? And he'd say these things, and he talks about this in one of his books. Uh, the book is Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. If you ever get time, a great read definitely suggest that but 
So he's telling his story, and this is the kind of guy that he was as a Muslim, always arguing for his faith against the Christian faith. And then he, uh, in college, uh, going to school, I think at that point he was studying biology, he got placed in this room with another guy that was about as equally as smart. And this guy, one day, he saw him reading his Bible. And he said, why are you reading that thing? It's full of errors and all these different things. Why would you read that? I thought you were smarter than that. And the guy starts to argue with him. He's like, hey, well, what about this? What about that? So they have this dialogue and these arguments for the next three to four years. Okay, it wasn't like a one-day thing. Okay, and, and Nabil's bringing uh, this guy to his friends that are um, uh, apologists for Islam. And he's bringing Nabil to his friends that are Christian apologists. And they're having this thing. They become best friends, even though they have different faiths. Then all of a sudden, about three, four years into it, Nabil realizes, wow, Christianity is more logical it makes more sense. After I'm studying these things and I'm looking at these things, it's the Quran that contradicts itself. And so he said, God, logically, you got me, but you need to show up. Somehow, some way, you need to let me know, Jesus Christ, that you're God. So I won't get into the dreams, but the Lord met him in two dreams. And he came to know the Lord. Now he's a famous apologist. But there was a consequence for him coming to the Lord. See, his family completely rejected him. And he knew that they're strong Muslims. If he accepts Jesus, they think he's going to hell, okay? So if he accepts Jesus, there's no coming back from that. They cut him off. They disown him. They didn't even go to his wedding. He got married. His parents didn't go because he became a Christian. Imagine if that was the case for us. That was the cost for following Jesus. Because Jesus tells us, it's going to be on some level or another. John chapter 15, verse 18, he says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. There's an expectation of rejection. There's an expectation that the world is indeed going to hate us. It's going to reject us because it rejected him first, even our own. Look what he says in Matthew chapter 13. Another reason why they reject him. Not just because he's a carpenter, but they bring his family into it. Look at this. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? What is he saying here? Is not his mother called Mary? See, these people are ruthless in their verbal assault of Jesus. This is a low blow. People were referred to by their father's name, not their mother's name. So what are they saying here? The son of Mary, they're telling Jesus he's an illegitimate son. He has no father. Okay. There's words for that. That's what they're saying about Jesus. He has no father. He's legitimate. The implication here is that Mary was sleeping around before she ever married Joseph. This was what was said in that time and that day. There were rumors about Mary. Yeah, Jesus, he's an illegitimate son. So this is a serious low blow. This is personal. They're being so ruthless in their insults towards Jesus. We can expect that too. We can expect the world to be ruthless in its rejection of us, ruthless in its insults towards us. But what do we do when we receive 
ruthless rejection? What do you do when you receive a brutal insult and your family gets pulled into it? Like they said something about your mama. For real. How do you respond? Okay, say something about me, but about my mom, really? Say something about my brother and my sister? Say what you want about me. But yada, 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 get puffed up, right? It's like, get a little, yeah, I'm going to do something about this. That's not what Jesus did. That wasn't the way of Jesus. Uh, a while back, a few years back, I, um, I put like a verse that was speaking to me on Facebook. Oh, Facebook. <laughs> I put a verse on there. Um, and I came back a couple days later and apparently I started a Facebook war. Okay. I go on there and one of my old friends that I grew up with, we were in the same neighborhood. Like he was like a brother to me. I was, his sister was like a sister to me. We were kids playing together for all growing up. And he makes a response from my first verse. I just put a verse like, come on. He's like, you really believe this stuff? The Bible's all allegory and yada, yada, yada. And then my cousin, she's a Christian. She gets on. She's like, what are you talking about? And they have this dispute. And then he's talking about, oh, I know the Bible. I translated the whole Bible. And, and, and she says, in what? In Greek or Hebrew? And he's like, both. And they get in this whole debate. And then he starts quoting Karl Marx. And he's like, you, don't you guys know that religion is the opium of the ignorant masses? And there's all these things. So two days later, I come back and there's like 30 comments. And I'm like, this is just a Bible verse. And I'm reading his comments and I'm getting hot. I'm getting heated. I'm like, dude, this is so disrespectful. You're blasting not just me, but my faith on social media. And it was so ruthless in his assaults, insults towards me. And at first I was like, dude, this is illogical. This is illogical. I'm going to send him back this long message that makes him feel dumb, makes him feel small, makes him feel ignorant. And the Lord knocked on my heart. He said, just love them. Just tell them you love them. Send them your number again. Tell them to call you if he wants to talk about any stuff. It's like, God, I don't want to do that. I want to make him, I want, he blasted me on social media for the last two days and I didn't even know about it. I want to blast him back. Or he's like, no, 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 no. Just tell him you love him. Send him your number. So I was like, Matt, I love you. I miss you. Call me if you want to talk about these things. I think I got some some answers that you might appreciate. He never called me. It was very hard to do that because when we face insults, especially when our family gets involved, and that had nothing to do with my family, it's easy for us to get puffed up and want to speak back out or fight against them or whatever, make them feel like they made us feel, but that wasn't the way of Jesus. He came to Nazareth knowing that he was going to be rejected, knowing that he was going to be insulted, and yet he did it anyways, and he did it with love. Picking it up in Matthew chapter 13, verse 56. And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? We see that Mary, she didn't stay a virgin. She had uh, sons and daughters, okay? Where did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Look at this. This is really interesting. It says, verse 57, that they were offended at him. He offended them. Why? He just spoke in power. They were astonished in what he did and how he preached, but they were offended at him because they were familiar with him. 
See, familiarity breeds contempt. The more familiar we become with someone, the easier it is for us to be offended by what they have to say and ultimately discredit what they have to say. We get used to people. We get comfortable with specific people. And the more comfortable we get with people, the easier it is for us to discredit discredit what they have to say. Think about any of you that have parents. Think about being a child and your parents. You're so familiar with them. So when they say something to you and they correct you or exhort you or whatever, or discipline you, whatever way they choose fit, it's easy for you to be like, no, I don't want to. I don't want to, I saw you doing the same thing that you're telling me not to do. Wait a minute. And Jesus, this isn't applicable for his case because he was perfect. He was sinless. He wasn't a hypocrite. But think about it, like a family member or a parent that they're telling you what to do. And because you know them so well, because you're so familiar with them, you get resentful when they give you instruction. The more familiar we become with people, so often the less likely we're going to tune in to hear what they have to say. So when I first came here, you guys were probably like, oh, cool, something different. He's a guest speaker. Now it's like two months in and you guys are like, dude, man, I've been listening to this guy for like two months. Can't we have a guest speaker by now? It's like, come on. I'm familiar with him. I'm comfortable with him. It's like, he has the same style all the time. He does the same things. Yada, yada, yada. It's like, "Ah, I'd rather hear a guest speaker every now and then. Why? Because we get familiar with people. He's like, eh, I want something different. I don't... I'm used to his style or I'm used to the way they do things. So can we switch it up a little bit? This is the problem with the people of Nazareth and their response to Jesus. They're familiar with them. So they're offended because of them. And part of this is because you got to think Jesus is often correcting them, speaking truth to them. He's saying things like repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. If you don't repent, you're going to die in your sin and there's eternal consequences. Now imagine your friend telling you that before you knew the gospel. You're like, really? You're going to tell me this? Who are you? You're a carpenter. I live next door to you. Like you're nobody. And they're getting offended because of what he's saying, because who they think that he is. Pick it up at verse 58. It says, Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So the people rejected Jesus because they didn't believe in him. But it says that he didn't do mighty works there because of their unbelief. In Mark's account, in Mark 6, I think verse 5, it's between 1 and 6, um, he, it says that he couldn't do many works there because of their unbelief. Literally, the Lord was limited because of their lack of faith, which brings me to the second point. Lack of faith limits the Lord. This is crazy when you think about it. Lack of faith limits the Lord. He couldn't do mighty things there because of their unbelief. When you look at the gospels and every time Jesus heals someone, they fall into one or two categories, okay? Either they have a little faith in Jesus, they've heard what he's done, heard him speak, watched him do miracles, and they come to Jesus. We see that many times. An example of that would be like uh, the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7. She comes to Jesus. She's crying at his feet, uh, wipes his feet with her tears. And then Jesus says, your faith has saved you. That word saved is whole. Your faith has made you whole. Your faith has made you well. And Jesus says that many times. You had a little faith and I did something with that little faith. 
or someone has no faith. They don't know who Jesus is. They haven't heard him. They haven't spoken to him. They haven't heard him preached. And Jesus works with no faith as well. Good example of that would be John chapter five with the man at the pool of Bethesda. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He's laying with an infirmity for 38 years next to the pool, waiting for the angel to stir it up and he's got to get in. And Jesus approaches him and says, do you want to be made well? He doesn't know who Jesus is. His response is, I have no one to put me in the pool. Jesus says, take up your mat and walk. And it says that the guy didn't know who Jesus was. They asked him who healed him. He didn't know who healed him. And Jesus took no faith and gave him faith. Now, follow me here. Jesus works with little faith. He works with no faith, but he doesn't work with unbelief. What's the difference? What's the difference between no belief and unbelief? Unbelief is he's done the works. He's got the word of cross. You've been astonished by his works and his word. You know that he exists, but you choose still not to believe. He's given you every reason to believe and you still choose to have a hard heart towards God. That's the case for the people of Nazareth. He's given them every reason to believe, so he's limited in what he can do because of their unbelief. This is the same problem that the children of Israel had in the wilderness. If you look at Psalm 78, it's really hard to grasp the fact that God is limited in anything. It's really interesting to consider that he's limited by our lack of faith. The same thing happened in the wilderness. Psalm chapter 78 Verse 40, it says, How often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again, they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. They limited God in the wilderness. Why? They had every reason to believe. Consider all the things that God had done to bring Israel out of Egypt. All the plagues, right? He actually allows Pharaoh to be brought to the point that he can't bear this anymore, the death of his firstborn son. He let my people go, okay? Yeah, Moses, we're going to let him go this time. I can't bear this any longer. He does the plague thing. He parts the Red Sea. He does that thing, right? He provides the manna. He provides the pigeons. He provides all these different things for the people. He's given them every single reason to believe that he truly is their God appearing on Mount Sinai, leading them with a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. It's like they had every reason to believe, yet they chose not to believe. They had unbelief. What does that really mean? They didn't trust them. They didn't completely trust the Lord. That word belief is the same as trust. They didn't trust God. Their belief didn't lead them to trusting God to the point that they were willing to follow him. They kept wanting to go back to Egypt, to be back in their comfort zone. So we see this lack of faith that limits the Lord. How many things you think you missed out on because of your lack of faith? I wonder, I ask myself the same thing. I wonder how many things I've missed out on because of my lack of faith. But struggling with faith, it's a common thing. Raise your hand if you ever struggle with faith. Yeah? Dang, Stephen's got two hands. That's double. Maybe one cancels the other one out. Kidding. 
No, we all struggle with faith. It's a normal thing, right? It's, it's normal for us to be brought to a place that we're questioning, God, can I really trust you? And it usually happens when we're going through extremely difficult circumstances. Maybe we lost a loved one. Maybe we had a broken relationship. Maybe we're just hurt so badly that we ask, God, I thought you were such a loving father. How could you be a loving father and allow this thing to happen to me? So it turns into this unbelief that's rooted in this lack of trust. God, I don't really trust you. Now, Jesus is okay with having a faith, but struggling with faith. He'll help us grow in our belief, even when we're sitting on that kind of like, oh, Lord, I believe, but he talks about it in Mark chapter nine. There's a story of a man that asked Jesus to heal his son. And look what he says here. Mark chapter nine. Verse 23, Jesus said to him, if you can believe all things are possible to him who believes. Now look how this guy responds. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe I have faith, but I still struggle with faith. I believe, but there's part of me that doubts. There's part of me that questions. Sometimes when I go through hard things and this guy's situation, his boy is suffering. When I go through these hard things, when I face suffering, when I face trial, sometimes I doubt you. Sometimes I don't know if I completely trust you. And he says, that's okay. You have faith. Pray for more faith. You believe I'll help you with your unbelief. And Jesus in this situation, he heals the son. He does the miracle so that this guy goes from a place of uh, belief and unbelief to full-fledged belief, full-fledged faith. See, sometimes God will take it upon his shoulders. It will be his responsibility to take our unbelief and turn it into belief. But other times it's our responsibility See, when we get in those times, in those situations where we're struggling with trust, we're struggling with faith because all these bad things keep happening to us, it's like we can't win anything. It's like every day is a bad day and we're just struggling. And it's our responsibility in those moments to reflect on what God's already done. See, with the children of Israel, they weren't thinking about what God had done. They were focused on what God hadn't done. They were so focused on what he didn't do that they weren't thinking about what he did. God, you did all these miracles. When we consider everything that he did, it brings us to a place of, that's all you got to do. His grace is sufficient. We don't need any more than what he's already done. Now that doesn't mean that he won't continue to do because that's what God does. He continues to do. But when we are struggling with our faith and we're struggling with that, uh, I believe, help my unbelief thing, The best thing for us to do, our responsibility, is to meditate on all that he's done up to this point. In Psalm chapter 21, verse 4, you can just write it down. It says, he asked life from you and you gave it to him. So we ask life from God and he gave it to us. Think about 
the time before you were saved. Think about that moment before you came to the Lord. You were so broken. You were so helpless. You were so hopeless. You've maybe destroyed your life. Maybe you just went through a hard time and you recognized that you needed the Lord so desperately. You asked him for life and he gave you life. And then think about all the things that he's done for you in your life since then. When we consider those things, when we meditate on those things, then our unbelief comes to a place of belief. If you did all those things then, and I trusted you then, why would I not trust you now? You're the same God. Bible says same God yesterday, today, and forever. You didn't change. My circumstances might have changed, but you didn't change. So Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And help me meditate on the things that are going to help me believe more. Help me to consider all of these different things, the actual miracles that you've done in my life. In closing, I want to flip to Mark chapter 6. I say in closing. This is a long closing. Um, It's a whole point of closing. Mark chapter 6. Matthew doesn't account for this, but I think it's really important. Mark chapter 6, same story, verse 6, it says, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Why? Because he gave them every reason to believe. And then he went about the villages of the circuit teaching. Think about this. Jesus, knowing that he'd be rejected in Nazareth, he goes to Nazareth, rejected by his own. They insult him, the carpenter, the son of Mary, illegitimate son, yada, yada, yada. We don't have to listen to what he has to say. And then what does he do? He goes on a circuit teaching after that. He continues on in what God had called him to do despite the rejection. Which brings me to the third and final point. Follow God's direction despite rejection. Follow God's direction despite rejection. See, he expected rejection. He faced rejection, but he was still purposed to follow God's direction. Rejection hurts, but it shouldn't hinder. Okay? Rejection hurts. It breaks our hearts, but it shouldn't hinder us from following what God has called us to do. Because any of us, we would have faced that and been like, I went home and I shared the gospel with my friends and they called me names and I'm not doing it anymore. I can't do it anymore. That's not Jesus. He's like, I have faced rejection by my friends. I've faced rejection by my own countrymen, even my family, and I'm still pursuing what God's called me to. Nothing moves Jesus from what the Lord has called him to do. Not rejection, not persecution, not punishment, not trial, not tribulation, absolutely nothing. But what will we allow us to discourage us from following God's direction for our lives? A little heartbreak, a little rejection, a little trial, a little tribulation, a little hardship. And we could look at those things and, ah, man, I'm just not cut out for this Christian thing. Yes, you are. God's called us to come to him. And it's going to be difficult. Remember, he said, narrow is the way and difficult is the path that leads to life. Jesus, he continued to do what God called him to do despite being rejected. I want you to identify with this. Rejection. In all transparency, I hate rejection. Rejection is like one of the worst feelings in the world, isn't it? 
It's like one thing to be cut from like a football team or a baseball team or the cheerleading squad or whatever you wanted to be a part of, but it's another thing to be rejected by someone you love. You ever felt rejection by someone you love? Maybe it was a boyfriend. Maybe it was a girlfriend. Maybe it was a child. Maybe it was a wife or a husband. Maybe it was a parent. I know this is painful, but I want you to sit there. Think about that. That's, it hurts. It's seriously one of the most painful experiences in the world to be rejected. Now we can look at rejection and say, hey, <clears throat> being rejected by someone is not worth the pain. See, loving someone and the rejection that comes from that, it's not worth the pain when we're rejected by someone that we love. Often we can get it in our mindsets. I would, I never want to love again. I can't love again. The rejection and the pain of rejection hurts so much that I, I, I just can't put my heart out there again. I just can't let it get crushed again. But Jesus, that wasn't his mentality. See, despite being rejected, he continued to pour out love to the very ones that rejected him. He loved them before the rejection. He loved them during the rejection and he continues to love them after the rejection. See, this wasn't like a surprise to him. This wasn't a shock to him. Jesus knew before the foundations of the earth that he would be rejected. It's prophesied. It's Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. The very people that he came to die for were going to reject him, were going to spit in his face. That's us. We reject him. We sometimes despise him. What I mean, no, I love Jesus. You might love Jesus, I believe, yeah. You probably do love Jesus, but what about when he corrects you? What about when he tells you to change something in your life? What about when he gives you a, a direction or instruction that you don't completely agree with? Do you submit to it or do you reject it? Now, we also have to understand that Jesus rejected, despised by men, calls us to be like him. God's will for our lives is that we would be transformed into his image. Okay, how many people pray, almost on a regular basis, we were praying it back here, um, that that God would make you more like him. Anybody pray that? That, hey, Jesus, I pray, that's his, that's his goal. That's his, it's 2 Corinthians 3.18. We're all called to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That's his goal for every child. Every single child of God is called to be raised up to look like Jesus. Jesus is the golden child. He's the perfect son. We're all supposed to look like him. So often when we pray that prayer, Jesus, make us more like you. I want to be more like you. That's a good prayer, but we consider things like love and grace. God, make me more forgiving. Make me more sacrificial towards my wife or towards my husband. God, I want to pray more. Help me with this thing. But do you ever consider the character, character quality of heartbreak? Do you know that God's heart breaks? It's crushed, especially when his children are in sin. But in general, I just want to focus on the character quality of heartbreak. Jesus was rejected. He faced heartbreak from the very people that he came to save. So when you pray, God, make you more like, make me more like you. And God walks you through a season of loneliness and despair and rejection. And you feel like you're all alone and you have no friends and nobody loves you. 
Do you get bitter at God? Or do you recognize he's just making you like him? That's what he went through. The very people he came to save, his own family members rejected him, broke his heart. So when we pray that, sometimes God walks us through those difficult seasons, not because he's so far away from us or he's angry at us, but he's like, no, I'm answering your prayer. I'm making you like me. And though this hurts me more than it hurts you, I need you to identify with my broken heart because this is part of who I am. I'm rejected, I'm despised, I'm heartbroken over my people. So Jesus, he's training the disciples. He told them that they would be despised and rejected and hated by the world. And now he's showing them, hey, I was despised, rejected, hated by my own. He's preparing them. Hey guys, I'm giving you a picture of what you're going to face when I leave here and you start your own ministries. This is all in an effort of discipleship. I'm giving you an example that you can follow in my footsteps. And part of that is watching me be rejected so that you can be prepared to be rejected. But Jesus had this certain mentality, as we see here. He continued to follow the Lord's direction. He continued to follow God's will for his life. He continued to the very people, he continued to minister to the very people that he knew were going to reject him despite the heartbreak, despite the heartache, despite the rejection. And his mentality, Paul carried with him as well. I'll close with this. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, he says, but none of these things move me nor do I count my life dear to myself, bless you, that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What's Paul saying? Dude, I looked at Jesus' example. Nothing moved him. He wasn't moved by persecution. He wasn't moved by insults. He wasn't moved by rejection. None of these things moved him. So none of these things are going to move me. And I'm going to press toward the goal until I fulfill the ministry that God's placed on my life. It was the mentality of Paul because it was the mentality of Jesus. And I pray that it would be the mentality of us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... God, what you endured, what you faced, Lord. You were despised and rejected by men, God. And you knew it was going to happen. And yet you endured it anyways for our sakes that we could be saved. Lord, and I pray that you would just give us the strength to endure rejection, God to endure loneliness, to endure any of the hard times, knowing that you're using them to mold us and shape us to become more like you. You're preparing us for things to come, God. And I pray that we wouldn't get bitter at you because the things that happen to us in our lives, but we would recognize no matter what happens to us, you're a good father and you stay a good father. You always were, you always are, you always will be, Lord. So give us the faith to trust in you. If there's anyone struggling with unbelief, Lord, I pray that you would help them with their unbelief. God, in your name, amen.